you're an art advisor. I love art advisors across the board. So tell me a little bit about how you like, so you run elements in play. First of all, I want to know how you got that name. Well, I mean, to talk about my name, I have to back up a little bit and give my background, I suppose. I grew up in Los Angeles. My mother is an artist and I grew up around a lot of art in my home and always going to galleries and museums with my family in LA. And when we traveled, art was a big focus of the family. And I fell in love with art and I went to Berkeley for college and I studied art history, not as a major or with any intention of working in the art business. In fact, in college, I'm pretty sure I didn't know there was an art business, but I really loved art. So I took a bunch of art history classes and then I lived in Paris for a year after college and I studied art history at the Sorbonne. I did get a certificate in that, but again, it was not for any purpose other than to learn more about art. And Paris was a great place to do that because we did field trips every week to different museums, which was really fun. I subsequently moved to New York and I joined several groups at museums. They have affinity groups where you get together with collectors and art professionals and have events and do trips. And I started collecting art. And at the time, I was working in the hedge fund business, which is a crazy route how I got there. But I used to raise money for hedge funds. And I went with a group from the Museum of Modern Art to the first Art Basel in Miami in 2002, and I bought a piece of art, and that really just changed my world. I hadn't intended to become a collector, but I started spending more and more and what became all of my free time looking at art and started collecting, and I had friends who were collectors, and they helped me along the way. Can I ask a stupid question? I'm not in finance. Exactly what is a hedge fund? That's a good question because a lot of firms call themselves hedge funds when they are not really hedge funds. They're asset management companies. They take people's money and invest it. And the name came because hedge funds would actually hedge their bets, basically. And that's what I assumed. Yeah. I'm like, it's, it's sort of speculative work. It is speculative, but you go long something and you go short something and you kind of have sort of supposedly a market neutral outlook, which is more complicated than, than we need to get here. But that's not what a lot of hedge funds do, but they still have the name hedge fund because it's really become a way to set up an asset management company so that you can charge certain fees because hedge funds charge a lot of fees. And that's become more of what a hedge fund is. All, all reasons why I don't know anything about this. Yeah, <laughs> that's a podcast unto itself. Oh, I'm sure it, it's many podcasts that just talk about that. Yes. But okay, so you were in the hedge fund and then you left, you started collecting and? And I spent, as I was saying, all of my free time looking at art and I started traveling around the world with different museum groups. And I decided at some point to leave finance and go work at a gallery. So I got a job in a gallery in Chelsea. And at some point I decided that I wanted to leave the job and start my own advisory business. And when I did that, I decided I needed, obviously, to name my company, and the most common 
art advisory name would be Karen Boyer Art Advisory or something like that. And I didn't want to do that for many reasons, one of which was actually I was a little nervous to go out on my own. And in case it didn't work out, I wanted to have a company name that could lend itself to something than other than Karen Boyer Art Advisory. So I got together with some friends and we went through a bunch of names and somebody had GoDaddy up on her phone and she kept looking up all the names that we came up with and everything was taken. It's very hard to name a company. So the next day I was reading an article about how to name your company and it said, name your company after something that you love. So I kind of looked around my apartment. What do I love? What do I love? And I was looking on my walls. I love my art collection. So I pulled up a spreadsheet that I had of all of my art and went through the titles of every piece of art, most of which did not lend themselves to a company name. (laughs) But I came across a drawing that I had literally just bought called Elements in Play. And I really liked the name because they say companies are in play with their for sale and there's a lot of different elements that go into making art. And I also had just bought the drawing knowing that I was about to quit my job at the gallery and that was very irresponsible. And so I just, all those reasons, and I thought it was a cool name. So I looked it up, it wasn't taken. And so I named my company Elements in Play. Although I did call the gallery to make sure that I was allowed to do that because artists retain copyright in their artworks for many years I wanted to make sure that you can't use an image without getting permission from the artist, but I wanted to make sure that that was not the case for the title of an artwork and the gallery told me it was fine. Yeah, I can't imagine that would be a problem unless you specifically said it's named after this piece of artwork and like showed the artwork, like then it might be a bit of a problem. Well, very few people until now knew that I named my company after an artwork. So, but now the cat is out of the bag. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Now, but when was this? So you started the the art advisory when? Officially. April will be 11 years. Okay. So, okay. And you started it while you were in New York and it seems you're no longer in New York. Is that correct? That is correct. I moved to Miami three and a half years ago. Although pre-COVID, I was in New York every month or two and I'm hoping to get back to somewhat similar schedule. We all would love to do be able to go back to New York once in a while. That sounds marvelous. Yes. I love living in Miami, but most of my business is still done out of New York. All right. So the business, that's the stuff that fascinates me the most. I love it. Okay. I mean, I'm one of those weird artists that actually really is am interested in how the arts world works instead of just like wanting to sit in my studio as much as I would love to just sit in my studio. But so you do art advisory. So that means you have a client that needs some art and you're sort of the middle person between that transaction more or less, right? Yes. And in fact, a good thing for any artist to know out there, because I get requests constantly from artists that want me to help them. Art advisors do not work for artists. And it's It's an easy mistake to make, but we don't work for artists. We work for collectors. I knew that. Yeah. I know you know that, but a lot of people don't know that. I know. Oh, I could imagine it. I mean, well, but there is a certain aspect to that, though, is 
how do artists get on your radar as far as making it so that you're aware of these artists so that you could buy, buy their work for clients? Because while you don't work for artists, or you need to know the artists. So how do you, how do you find your artists? That's a very good question and a very good point. My clients, and this is just particular to me because other art advisors are very different, but my clients are buying art at a different level than for me trying to discover artists. They want artists that already have at least somewhat of a career. So I'm not looking to discover artists and I learn about artists through galleries mostly galleries send me previews of all the shows that they're having and art fair previews. And so I know what's going on in their programs and that's how I learn. I mean, I can describe what a preview is. <laughs> I know what it is, but I mean, you're welcome to describe it if you'd like. So another business point also is that galleries are happy to sell out their exhibitions and their art fair booths before anything even opens. So they send out what they call previews of what is going to be in the exhibition or their art fair booth. And like I said, they're happy to sell everything beforehand, which is becoming more and more common now that people don't travel as much. But that's how I learn. And galleries will tell me what's happening with the careers of the artists. And if they have big collectors that just bought something or if museums are considering a purchase of something. And, and that's how that's how I learn. See, that, that whole sense of what you just explained there is this, this beautiful sort of shroud of mystery from the outside world that we're, we're like, so people talk behind the scenes, like these people sell this, these people talk about that. And we're always like, what do they talk about? How do they get this knowledge? Where do they get, and how do they know to buy this thing before an exhibition even comes up, which of course is the previews and people who have collected, they always contact those people in advance. I've worked in galleries before. So like I, I've done the, all these things. So I understand that, but how do you like, do, do you, so you only work with galleries. You don't work directly with any artists period. Well, that's not entirely true. I do come across artists from time to time. And in fact, I live in Miami where there's a very good residency program called Fountainhead. And they rotate in and out three artists from all over the world every month. And I belong to this organization and I go, not every month, but I try to go as often as possible to learn about the new three artists and some of them have gallery representation and some of them don't. And there are times when I have made relationships with artists that I really like that I have had clients buy things directly from the studio, but it's atypical. But even back to my point, only artists that already have somewhat of a career get invited to do this residency. And even if they don't have a lot of gallery representation or any at all. They went to a good school. There's curators looking at them and they've been nominated for a residency. So it's still further along in their career. Yes. Which fascinates me. I've been hearing lots of different stories about this. So give me your input on this. When you're looking at an artist, what are the criteria of sort of like a hierarchy of the most important things? 
okay, and I'll give you the reason why I'm asking this for myself, because of course this is all about me in some ways. <laughs> the the like there's the you know going to a good school then there's also having you know certain exhibitions or working with certain institutions or working with certain galleries there's the quality of the work there's the artist statements there's i mean there are so many sort of factors that go into sort of be defining somebody as a worthwhile artist to collect so like what are some of the more important or less important things on your sort of criteria Again, another good question, and that also factors into how prices get established because people ask that too, and it's the same answer, really. I look at what school they went to, what galleries represent them, and if they are not represented by galleries, sometimes they've had solo shows at galleries or they've been in group shows at certain galleries even if they don't have representation, but they've been in three group shows at good galleries in various places in the world, that's important. If they're in private collections or public collections, if they've had good residencies, if they've received grants, there are a lot of inputs. And the gallery representation is important on many levels. One is the reputation of the gallery, period. What art fairs they participate in, and we can talk about art fairs as much or as little as you want, but the art fair landscape is very important, and art fairs kind of sometimes create reputations of galleries. If you get accepted into a certain art fair, that can catapult you to a different level of gallery. But for me, on top of that, I like galleries that treat their artists well, and not all of them do. I care that they are long-term players for their artists and they want to build their careers instead of just make a quick buck on a popular artist's show. So that sort of thing is very important to me when I'm looking at galleries and, and helping clients buy from those galleries. So all of those factors I look at to establish sort of the reputation of the artist and then also to evaluate whether I think the prices are correct that a gallery is charging. Because the price is the price, you can take it or leave it, but sometimes they're just too expensive and it doesn't make sense for where an artist is in their career. It always un unfortunately ends up being that artist's work is often overpriced. It's pretty rare to be like happen upon an artist and be like, oh, you know what, this is undervalued. <laughs> I should definitely be buying some of this because it's worth more. Like that just doesn't seem to happen very much in the arts industry. Not anymore. True. Yeah. There was a time when you probably could get those undervalued. Like my parents, when they were got married, this is what, 1964, they bought like a Chagall print for like $6. Wow. Yeah. It's like our prized possession. We're like, Ooh, we got a Chagall. With the, when they still have the tag and everything on the back of it that says they paid $6 for it. Wow. That's amazing. Another thing that I just wanted to go back to what also what you were talking about before that is also a factor is that, and I kind of joke about this, but it's not really a joke that insider trading is legal in the art business and people do it as often as they can, but it's not really insider trading, but galleries will tell me, as I mentioned before, when a museum show is coming up, but you know, if a certain artist is having a show at MoMA in 2023 
There's no press release issued because nobody cares. It's too far in advance. They're not selling tickets. It's just not interesting to most people. But it's very interesting to me. So the galleries will, will tell me that because they want to sell the work now. And I will tell my clients that I think it's a good time to buy because the show is coming up and the prices will go up. And so that is a factor in whether or not to buy something. But it's also sort of what an art advisor brings to the table, too, of, of having access to this information. And for galleries, it's just a set part of the sales pitch. <laughs> Well, like I've heard stories about trustees or advisory boards for museums, and those people are often collectors themselves, and they will sort of encourage the museum to have an exhibition of somebody that they're collecting. And so therefore, the value of their collection then increases because of the museum or institution having an exhibition of an artist that they have in there. <laughs> so bad, such insider kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. Yes, that is actually true. And there is a thing now that galleries are doing because more and more now, first of all, let's say the art market is on fire. I've never been busier in my entire career. People are buying art everywhere all the time. And that's creating more waiting lists at galleries. And some of the galleries for the most popular artists will to want to be buyers that they buy one for themselves. They will have the ability to buy one for themselves if they also buy one and donate it to an approved museum. I've heard that story before. Yes. So that's been happening for years, but never with the frequency as I have experienced lately. <laughs> well, I'm fascinated to hear that you're saying that the, the art industry is on fire. I like you know, it's post COVID people are talking about recessions and economic problems and all this kind of stuff. And of course, wondering what's going to happen to the arts world, i.e. art fairs. And of course the brick and mortar places after COVID ends. And so like the idea that a lot of people are buying is very optimistic. And I enjoy that. It has puzzled many people, but you know, the rich have gotten richer. The stock market has risen people's investments have risen true and people have been home for a year and a half i mean starting to travel more and more but a lot of their money that they would have spent on travel and buying things is just burning a hole in their bank account and they're bored and they're looking at their walls and people have bought new homes and bigger homes and so people want art and art has been a fashionable thing to acquire, but it's also considered an asset now. And so-and-so is how getting one. I should get one. So it's status thing. And Yeah, keeping up with the Joneses. Yes. Yeah. Well, but there is also the part that you're saying where people are buying more houses because a lot of people, because of COVID and stuff, are leaving major metropolitan areas and going out into, you know, more rural areas, let's say, not rural, but more rural areas and getting places that are larger to live in. And so like they need more art. And Miami, everybody's moving to Miami because it's warm. People can work remotely now and there's no state or city income tax. So that is attractive. There's a big draw and the real estate market here is insane. People are buying additional homes. I've never heard of Miami's real estate market going, no, no, it's fine. It's not crazy. <laughs> like, it's always crazy. Well, it's, 
exponentially crazy since last summer. Really? Okay. It's really, yes, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bad actually. But that all of, for all of those reasons, the art market has been on fire. And also people, as I alluded to before, becoming more comfortable with buying online or just from a JPEG instead of seeing art in person. Stupid, subtle question, but like, are you talking about physical works or NFTs or are you dealing with either or both? I'm talking about physical works. Just being clear. Okay, great. I personally think NFTs is still a bit of a laundering, money laundering type of thing. I don't think there's anything really there yet. I think it has a lot of potential, but I don't think it's there yet, personally. What's your opinion? I couldn't agree with you more. Okay. Okay, good. I've actually never even had a client ask me about NFTs, but I just think that it's better to focus on tangible artworks and tangible assets if you're investing in something. Oh yeah, I'm huge on it. I mean, I, I, I mean, I love the idea of of an NFT, but as I said, at the moment, because it's still it basically, it's a bunch of corporations that have created this basically a, vis, a ver, visual cryptocurrency. That's pretty much all it is, and and so like it's still a company. It's not for the benefit of the artists, really. It's for the benefit of the company. They make the most money, not the artists. Well, except that artists now are making their own NFTs. <sighs> I know. It's, I, I still feel like at the moment, it's still a bit of a scam. Well, I think it's a way for people to make money. And if artists can make money minting NFTs, then more power to them. But I don't think that it's actually art at this point. At least art as I, in my old school way, envision it. Yes, I know. We all have that sort of feeling, but but the the other problem I have with it is it's it's a bit of a popularity contest. You know, it's a bit like high school, kind of like oh, if you're popular, you can sell an NFT. If you're not popular, but you make an amazing NFT, you can't sell it. So like, it's popularity. It's basically social media and high school all over again. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, okay. Wait, I want to go back to something you talked about. So when you were saying school, like when uh, looking at an artist, you were saying good schools what's a good school? Like what constitutes a good school? Cause the reason why I ask this is, is a very specific reason. Like I went to the San Francisco art Institute. Now they're closed. <laughs> so the school doesn't exist anymore. And, and, and over the years it waxed and waned. Like it had a decade here that it was really amazing. And the people that came out of it had great reputations and did great things. And then like the next decade, Maybe not so many, and then it would sort of come back again in, in favor, and it would do, you know pump out some better students the ne next decade after that. So, like, what are the things that sort of constitutes? I mean, we all know Yale. That's fine, I get that. But beyond Yale, what constitutes a good art school? Well, a lot of it is perception, and if your school did have a decade where a lot of good artists came out, then that probably would have a stamp of approval in the art world, even for times when maybe not such great artists were coming out of that school. But a lot of it has to do with, you know, they have open studios at the end of semesters for the BFA programs and the MFA programs. And certain schools have better collectors and museum curators that go to these open studios and purchase works a lot, not so much the museums out of those, but collectors do. And that's also how they get noticed from residency programs. And it sort of 
you know, snowballs from there, but it has to do with the reputation even in one year. And then that creates or produces better artists that do then get in collections and private collections and museum collections. And then the better artists want to go to those schools. And then it continues to produce that caliber of artist. And so it, it just kind of goes from there. Right. Cause I mean, I'm just even trying to think, cause I'm thinking, I remember being in undergrad and I was trying to think where to go to my master's. And like, of course people always give the recommendation, like find a teacher that you want to learn from and sort of follow that teacher, wherever, whatever school they're at, even if the school doesn't have a great reputation, you know, find a mentor basically. But I can think of many cases where that wouldn't do well because I had a few teachers that I was like, Oh my God, I want to learn from this teacher. But the school had a horrible reputation, (laughs) but that teacher was amazing. Well, and some of the schools with better reputations have popular artists that teach at the schools. And so then that's a draw for other artists. And then it produces better artists with better reputations. And that's a factor too in some of the schools. All right. Continuing on with this idea, because basically I'm trying to think of like, how could a young artist who's listening to this podcast, let's say, build a good um, career for themselves? Like what are some criteria they can think of? And one of the things I've been hearing a little bit of chatter about either way is uh, sort of should an artist be striving to be like incredibly strong where they live? So let's call it like nationally. So let's say a U.S. artist, should they be striving to be a great U.S. artist, or should they be striving to get exhibitions in Europe or Africa or South America, or like so to be more international? Like, which is more attractive? So, I understand that art is a business; it's a real business, and artists need to be somewhat cognizant of that. But I really think it's important for artists to be in their studios and make good art because some artists now are really focused on the commercial aspect of it. And that question that you just asked, I think it detracts from actually producing great art. I agree with you 100%. I'm a little, I personally, I'm very unhappy with the direction that the arts industry is taking as a whole when it comes to time and effort that the artists have to put into things. Like I loved the days when it used to be the artists made their works and they handed it off to the gallery. Gallery did all the whatever work. So they got them into the exhibitions. They got them the curators. They got them museum exhibitions, all that. And the artists just made their art. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the mo- the common practice these days, unless I'm, I have something wrong. Am I wrong? Well, that is the way it happens in a lot of the business. I love it. I want to find that part of the business. And I'm often asked by artists that I will not work with, but I people do ask me my advice on how to get a gallery and how to get noticed. And I will tell them to build their resume because people do look at the resume, as we discussed earlier, and to apply for residencies and apply for grants and to also become part of the artist community wherever you live because you'll meet artists that already have galleries and meet the galleries. And you can't really go into a gallery and drop off your portfolio because galleries will not accept them. And most gallery websites say they don't take artist submissions and that's not how they discover artists. They, you do it personally. So going to gallery openings and meeting people in the galleries that can help get you noticed. 
But also if you are part of an artist community and one of your friends is represented by a gallery, they can introduce you to the gallery. And mostly galleries have group shows in the summertime because they're not as heavily trafficked. And they ask very often one of their artists to curate a group show and artists almost always create a show of themselves and their friends. And that's a lot of times how people get discovered too, because if they're popular in a group show, then maybe the gallery will have a solo show and start representing them or other people will see the artist and maybe a different gallery would represent them. But it's for better, for worse, a lot about who you know and sitting alone in your studio is not really going to get you noticed. Yeah, I know. When I used to work at the gallery, we used to call uh, August exhibitions suicide shows because they never made any money, but we still had to put up an exhibition. So it's just like, yeah, put something up. But even if nobody goes in, they send out the previews. And since COVID, the galleries have really, really upped their online games. And almost all exhibitions are very well displayed on websites and you can see almost anything and they have interviews with artists and all kinds of background information. And for me, I'm always drowning in, in information, but it's very good if you want to learn about an artist or, or see a show, you can just do it on the website now. All right. Um, one little thing that you you talked about on your website was about collection management. And I have always been fascinated by spreadsheets and being organized. I used to work at a stock photography agency and we used to have to keep like meticulous database of like where, and just to show my age, the stock photography agency, we still use like 35 millimeter slides. So we had to keep meticulous like records of where every single physical slide was in what drawer and what location, blah, blah, blah. So I got into like tracking software and all this kind of stuff. You talk about how you help with documentation, photography, organization, tracking software, all this kind of stuff. Like, is there a good tracking software that you recommend for sort of keeping inventory of artwork? There are many different systems that are available right now. None of them are perfect. And in fact, I belong to this organization called the Association of Professional Art Advisors. And we actually had a call yesterday Something else that has happened from COVID that has been positive is that we have these Zooms all the time that we never had before. And so people from all over the world that belong to this organization, we can all get on a Zoom like we did yesterday and just literally talk about our businesses and the state of the art market and what we need help with. And one of the things that came up is these software systems. And we're actually going to have a whole zoom dedicated just to those so i can get back to you on that but there are some that exist for instance i have a client that i have his whole collection on collectrium which is a system that we can track the location of everything that he has he has works in his apartment he has a second home he has a storage unit he has his wife's office that has art in it and he has some works that are out on loan to museums. So all of that can be tracked in this software and we have high resolution images and all the invoices and get insurance update or valuation updates for insurance 
every so often whenever is necessary, and that can all be kept in there. So it's very easy to figure out where things are and what he paid for them and, and that sort of thing. Which actually you just brought up another topic that I'm fascinated with, which, which is insurance. Nobody has ever been able to give me a quantifiable sort of idea of like, so let's say you have a million dollar piece of art in your home. Let's call it a two-dimensional piece. So we're not talking something that could be knocked over easily. So a two-dimensional piece on a wall. How much is insurance for that? Like, how do you even insure these things? Like, literally. Well, a lot of times people will just get a fine arts rider on their homeowner's policy. That's typically how people will insure their art. And it's not that expensive. There's not a lot of risk for art hanging on a wall. And in fact, I try to convince people to get insurance because it's not that expensive. And I think it's important. And I always say that it's less expensive than say jewelry because nobody ever drops a painting in a gutter while walking down the street. And very rarely is a robber going to steal a piece of artwork. Right. It's more often would be water damage from an upper floor or maybe a fire or something like that, or, Art is most often damaged in transit. So if you are buying, you can buy standalone transit insurance to get it from a gallery to your house, but that's really expensive. And in fact, that's usually how I get clients to get insurance for a whole year because it's marginally more for a whole year than just the transit insurance. But there are also insurance companies that specialize in fine arts and you can have standalone arts insurance policies if it's at a certain level. If you just, if you have, you know, $100,000 or even $50,000 worth of art in your home, you can't get a standalone policy. But if you have a million dollars, then you can, you can get a standalone policy. And there's, there are brokers that specialize in art. It's a real industry too, because art is expensive and museums have a lot of insurance and storage facilities have a lot of insurance, even though the art is insured by the people that that own the art, but they have their own insurance. I know I've actually contacted some of these insurance companies to see if they'd be guests on the podcast and none of them have even responded to me. Oh, really? Yeah, not a one. I've, I've written to like five or six different ones and not a single one has even responded to my emails. I'm sure I could get you somebody that would talk on the podcast. <laughs> I would love to talk to somebody about that. I mean, it mostly just because, again, it's like another veil of secrecy. Like it's this thing that people don't talk about kind of thing. But I feel like it's very important. Like my family, we have a small art collection, nowhere near the valuations you're talking about. But like some pieces that like it would really suck if we lost them kind of thing. And, and it would you know make us very unhappy. Like the Chagall? <laughs> the Chagall, it's a print. It's worth like two, $200 now. It's not that valuable. But I mean, it's just a fun story. Because my, my parents, when they got married, they made an agreement. They said every year for, on their wedding anniversary, they would buy a piece of art. Oh, that's so nice. And so that was their sort of thing. And so they built up a nice, like we had a, a Chagall, we have a, a Calder, we have a, a Leonard Baskin, we have a William Blake. You know what I mean? Like, but they're, and none of them are like masterpiece works. They're all mostly works on paper and things like this. So that's nice though. But it, yeah, it, but it built a nice little small collection. Totally forgot where I was starting with this. But yes, I would love to talk to somebody about insurance. So just as a point of interest on my professional art advisors call yesterday, we have insurance people that are affiliate members since they're not art advisors, but I mean, insurance is very integrated into what we do because we're moving art around a lot and 
sometimes it does get damaged or it's in the sunshine and all, all kinds of things. But something came up about NFTs because it always does. And the insurance people said that they can't insure NFTs because they're not tangible. I often wonder about that because I'm always like, okay, like if you take an NFT, what if you just take that file and put it on a thumb drive? Doesn't that make it tangible? Not really. And could you even do that? I don't even know. I don't know. I can get you someone to talk about NFTs if you want to. I'm a little tired of talking about NFTs at this point, but well, but I mean, but like a video, like if if a, a, an artist sells a video piece of art, oftentimes it'll come on like a CD or a thumb drive or something. So like that's a physical thing. So why couldn't you put an NFT on a thumb drive and then call it a physical piece of art? I don't know. Don't get me wrong. I am not like encouraging it. I'm just questioning it. <laughs> it's fine. All right. You said you want to talk about art fairs. I like art fairs. So the art business has become more and more focused on art fairs pre-COVID for years. There used to be a few major art fairs in the world, and now there's... Way too many. At least one a week somewhere in the world. And obviously, after COVID, there were no art fairs, but they're starting to pick back up. Although art fairs like galleries really upped their game for their online presences, and they mostly call them OVRs, online viewing rooms, and they have online art fairs that are mostly terrible, in my opinion. You can see the art, but they're clunky. They've gotten much, 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 much better. And I hate to plug my organization again, but we've had many Zooms with the major art fairs to ask what different things we'd like to see and how we would like the websites to work because it's really hard to get people to buy art just from, you know, an online viewing room, but it's, it's become easier with different things that they've done abilities to save your favorites and send something to a client, but it's still not seeing art in person, which I highly always recommend, but it's also an art fair you walk around and there's a sense of discovery because even if you're only looking at one particular thing, you see something next door or a booth next door and you're walking around and you can see things that you had never thought about. But when you're on a website, you're for me, and you, I can't spend four days looking at the website. It's more direct and it's actually quite boring in my opinion. And for my clients too, they don't really want to sit in their living rooms and look at a website because they like to walk around a fair with me and they like to be social and see their friends and talk to the galleries. And that's one of the reasons that art fairs have become so popular because it's a status thing. You know, oh, I bought this at Art Basel in Miami. People like to say that as opposed to, oh, I bought this sitting in my pajamas in the living room. <laughs> It's not quite the same. No. So art fairs, I think, will remain important. Galleries have said throughout COVID that they won't do as many art fairs because they can sell it, maybe not as much art, but a lot of art from their own galleries without having to get on a plane and ship the art and pay for the booth and put up their employees in hotels and feed them. It's very, 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 very expensive. And then have a dinner for their clients and throw parties but I do think that it will continue. And I think the biggest example that people are looking at is Art Basel in Miami Beach the first week of December, which typically has 20 plus satellite fairs and 
thousands and thousands of people coming from all over the world. And I think that it will be very well attended despite the need to wear masks and show proof of vaccine or negative COVID test. But I think people will come and I think that people will still enjoy it. And, you know, Miami people like to come to because it's also a party, but buying art should be fun. And art fairs is a fun way that people have found to do it. Yeah. I, I have mixed emotions about it from my perspective. I mean, I've been, I've worked at an art gallery that participated in an art fair and it, it went well. We ended up, you know, selling enough to make all of our in input, no, all of our investment back, you know, for doing it. But it was a, it was a hustle. It was tough to do that. I mean, and don't get me wrong. It was the first time they had ever done it. So the fact that on the first year they ever did it, they were able to do that was very impressive, but it's, it's a bit of, yeah, I mean, I, I love attending them, <laughs> but I cannot imagine the stress of participating in them because they put out, those galleries put out exorbitant amount of monies and with a hope and a prayer, because like some of them think through it and they like design it as like they do just one artist and they should, and, and they just hope that everybody loves that one artist, or they do it as sort of like a smattering of all the different art arts that they represent. So giving you a sense of what the entire gallery's sort of aesthetic is. And it, it's such a hit and miss thing. Like I, I can't imagine that amount of stress from their side of it. It is, it is a huge amount of stress. And as you say, there's always a break even number because they give 50% of everything they sell to the artists and then they have the, all the overhead and it's also time spent out of the gallery. So they have a break-even number that will pay for everything, but they also have to make sure that the resources are being spent wisely and COVID has made everybody evaluate that, but people still seem to be wanting to participate in the bigger art fairs. I mean, we'll see how it goes. And even if some galleries drop out, there's a lot of galleries behind them waiting to fill those spots. Yes, they are. Now, I mean, when I think of the art fairs, I think of the the big ones in America, Europe, and a little bit in Asia, basically where the art puzzles are pretty much like that's it. But why haven't they sort of gone to places like South America? And even is there any, there's not one in Africa, really, per se, like an art puzzle in Africa. Well, there's no Art Basel. Right now, they just have Art Basel in Basel, Switzerland, Art Basel in Miami Beach, and then in Hong Kong. Right. I mean, that kind of covers Europe, the Americas, and Asia, but they don't have huge markets for that. But it remains to be seen. I mean, South America has its own art fairs. Every country really has their own art fairs. And American and Western, you know, and European galleries have participated on and off over the years. You know, Brazil has a big art fair, but their economy wasn't doing so well. And they also charge a lot of export taxes on art, which made it very difficult for galleries to sell there. But then they changed it during the week of the fair. You can get art out for a lot less taxes. So basically all art from the whole year was sold in that one week, even though a deal made in December, they didn't actually sell it until April because the taxes were less. They don't make it easy is kind of part of that reason. But that, that whole thing though, like I've heard stories about Switzerland in that whole scenario of like 
taxes and tax evasion almost kind of like on the line of tax evasion fine line like i've heard stories that if if you buy a piece of art in switzerland and put it in storage but don't exhibit it anywhere i even in your home or anything so don't and then resell it you pay zero taxes well there are um, storage facilities in Switzerland and other places that are considered free ports. And if you buy something... I had that. Yeah. Free ports. Yeah. If you buy something and you put it in the free port in Geneva and never move it, it's considered in transit. Even for 20 years, it's considered in transit and you don't have to pay taxes on it. And if you sell it while it's still in the free port then you've never paid taxes on it. They have cracked down on that somewhat and they've been asking for the names of buyers and sellers and to try to really track that. But I don't think it's been super successful. Well, but that that makes a lot more sense because I saw a place called a free port outside of Dubai. And I was like, what's a free port? Like, outside, like now that I know that that's what it is, it makes complete sense there is one of those in Dubai as well. Yeah, they're all over. People don't want to pay taxes. <laughs> I guess that's in every part of life, but art buyers do not want to pay taxes and there are typically taxes associated with art, which could be another topic. <laughs> it is, but I don't know enough about it to even have a good conversation about it. I wanted to say something else about art fairs is that I, while art fairs are a big place to do art. And I do a lot of business at art fairs. And in fact, I probably wouldn't have been able to move to Miami if so much business was not done at art fairs, because I typically travel all over the world to art fairs. And that's where a lot of my clients want to buy art for reasons already mentioned. But I do not think that art fairs are the best place to buy art. And one of the reasons is what you brought up, that a lot of the galleries just have say one piece of art from all of or most of the artists in their program. And I always tell people that if you like something in the booth, you should ask someone from the gallery, everybody's walking around with an iPad glued to their hand, ask them to show you other work by that artist, because it's possible you like one painting, but you don't like anything else by the artist. So you shouldn't buy it because you don't actually like the artist's work or you kind of like the one piece, but when looking at all the other work, you like that better. So this is not the best example. So you shouldn't buy it. So just buying something without doing more due diligence is not the best way to go. I mean, there's solo booths, like you said, and that that's a better way to have an understanding of the artist's work. But I really do think that the most important thing when buying art is to ask questions and see as much as you can. Oh yeah. Every time I went to an art fair, I almost always fell in love with whatever art they did not bring by an artist. So like, like I would get attracted to a style, a technique or whatever medium that somebody's working in, but then I would always end up loving the work that they didn't bring to the art fair that I was like, I wish I could be at your gallery and see that piece. And so like, it's, it's such a crapshoot, like, cause they just bring what they hope and pray will work, but sometimes it doesn't work. It's not the thing somebody wants to buy. And so they end up, but hopefully they end up selling those works, you know, in the future. Maybe they make make connections. Well, yes. Similar to previews, they're happy to sell everything they have in inventory right off their iPad standing in the booth. 
That's why they have the iPads. And when things sell out, even if it's a solo booth that well may sell out or may not, you know, the crapshoot part, but they will show you other artists on their iPads because they have nothing else to do for four days. So they will sell whatever they can. Oh yeah. I remember actually having cigarettes with somebody at, I think it was at Dubai and he was just sitting out having cigarette and he's, I'm like, so what do you do here? He's like, Oh, I run this so-and-so booth. And I'm like, well, why aren't you in the booth? And he's like, we sold everything. <laughs> and I'm like, good for you. I'm like, hell yeah. So he was just got to hang out in Dubai for another three days because everything was sold. Well, sometimes galleries will sell out booths before the fair even opens the whole thing and they still ship all the art and hang it and light it and stand there with nothing to do. But that's why they try to sell other works as well. Well, but it looks good for them because, I mean, if I walked around in an art fair and I saw a booth where everything was sold, I'd be like, fuck, I want to work with that gallery. Well, I'll tell you, though, it creates, for me, it's very stressful and pressureful and it upsets art buyers a lot because uh, even an example, a couple of years ago, a client of mine, last minute client from New York that I had just started working with and taken to one art fair, Freeze New York, which is in May. And he bought some things and then, you know, we were in touch, but he hadn't bought anything. And the night before Art Basel, maybe the day before, he said, if I come down tomorrow morning, can you fit me in and take me around the fair? And I was like, yeah, I mean, if you want to fly down here, I know you're going to buy something. I didn't say that. I thought it. So <laughs> so I brought him to the fair in the morning and I had another client that was renovating a house. He wasn't ready to buy anything. So I asked him if it was okay if I brought him in the afternoon since he wasn't going to buy anything anyway. And he said, yes. So I brought this client in the morning and we walked around and everything he liked was sold. And he was very upset. I don't understand previews, blah, 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 whole thing. And he did find some works to buy. But he was upset about everything being sold or on hold because galleries will give you typically, if you want to see something in person, they will give you one hour to come and see it in person, which is hard because it takes three hours to walk around an art fair. <laughs> but you have to kind of zigzag and run around, which also creates stress and sort of, you know, sense of urgency that galleries like, but collectors don't. But so the following year, he made a whole trip out of it. He and his wife came. It was planned. I sent him a bunch of previews. We put things on hold. And then we got to the art fair at 11 a.m. when it opened. And we went and saw some things that were on hold. And he was really upset about that, too, because he said, well, what happens if I decide to buy some of these works that are on hold, but then I see something later that I like better? I'm like, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> You have to decide. You have one hour. He just has to buy all of it. I mean, it's, how hard is that? Yes. <laughs> Find the space. Build another house to accommodate it. It's fine. Storage. That's what storage is for. A free port. There you go. <laughs> are, wait, are there, there are no free ports in the United States, though, are there? There was a free port in New York. In New Jersey. No, New Jersey, right? It was in New York, actually, but it, it actually it closed for reasons I'm not exactly sure of, but it's not there anymore. There are in Delaware, there are free ports. Yeah, I've heard about a place like two hours away from New York where a lot of artists store or collectors store their art because of some 
It's in Delaware, probably. Is it Delaware? Okay. Yeah. I hear whispers about these things. <laughs> okay. Last little bit, like top big topic I want to ask you about is estate planning. I'm fascinated about it from multiple sides. So like because of your expertise, let's do it from the collector standpoint. How do most collectors sort of uh, plan for, or, or better yet, do they plan for any sort of estate planning? I was going to answer they don't. It's actually very hard to get collectors, for the most part, to think about art in that way. They call it an emotional asset, and collectors really love it. And even, even if they're buying it with investment in mind, most of the time they are living with it, either full-time or part-time. They're living with the works, and they don't want to think about art in that way. But I've art of clients that work in real estate or they invest in real estate. And I try to explain, you would never buy a building in your own name. Why would you buy a piece of art in your own name? And I recommend that they speak to estate planning attorneys or their accountant or something to set up trusts or corporations to buy the art in the name of a corporation. Because it is, I mean, not for everybody. And if you're buying a painting for $5,000, it doesn't apply. But if you're buying a painting for $5 million for estate planning purposes, they need a paper trail, for instance. They need to insure it. They want to put it in trust for their children to protect them from tax liabilities. And people really oftentimes don't want to do that. And I point out, you know, when you pass, your kids are going to fight over your art collection and they might want to sell some of it. And if there's no paper trail, there's going to be a problem. And a lot of times parents don't want to think about that, but it's very difficult. Okay, wait, you just told me something that I've never heard of before. So you're telling me that, let's say, a person's buying a piece for $5 million. They would not buy it like from their personal bank account. They would set up a company that would then be the purchaser of it? Or a trust. Trust. They could buy it in trust, yeah. People also set up companies. It could be like an investment vehicle. Sure. I mean, in, in financial business ease, that all makes very good sense. But like me, who's never, of course, bought a $5 million piece, I'm sitting here like, that sounds like tax evasion. <laughs> well, in some ways it is, right? You're setting up a company and you can set up your company that they are an investment vehicle. And because of that, if you buy art as an investment and you set yourself up as a reseller, you can get what's called a resale certificate so that you don't have to pay sales tax. But it has to be an investment. You can't hang it on your wall and enjoy it in that way. There's all kinds of things that, you know, do's and don'ts for that. But people do that and they don't pay sales tax and maybe they put it in a free port. There's all kinds of ways that people, they go to great lengths to not pay taxes. But a lot of it, back to the estate planning, I've seen it countless times where kids don't want some of the art. They all want the same art. I've seen where parents give them little dots and here, you're the green dots, you're the yellow dots. Go put the dots near the artwork that you like and you know we'll try to make an equitable division. 
my brother and I did the same thing in, in our family home. We actually, we, we kicked our parents out of the house for the day and he and I walked around the house and I was like, I want that. And he was like, I want that. And, and then we fought over a couple and we came to an equitable sort of divide of what we both wanted. That's good. That's unusual. I have a financial advisor I know recommended me to, well, there was parents that had five children and the mother wanted to sell some of the art. And so she, he recommended me and we talked about some of the art that she wanted to sell and then got the father involved. And he was lukewarm on the idea, but they thought they would present it to their children to see what they thought. And so one Christmas, they all, the seven of them got together and the parents presented a plan to sell some of the art and all of the children were unanimously in agreement that they should sell all of the art. And then they started, maybe you should sell some of this furniture, maybe some of the silverware they got because <laughs> they wanted the cash. It's much easier to split up cash than it is to split up, you know, tangible assets. So the father got so upset that he said, we're not selling anything, but in their will, they put me after we die, basically call Karen and she'll help you sell the art, which I thought was really creepy. <laughs> there are worse things to go about that. But I mean, yeah, I mean, our family and the reason why we kicked my parents out to do this was because of that exact thing. We knew we knew that my parents would not want to have this conversation about like what we all want because it, it ended up being very surprising because we told our parents what we wanted after we were all done with it and they were like you don't want this piece but we love this piece and like and and, and they were like you want that piece like we hate that piece <laughs> like yeah well that goes back to the emotional part of it it is interesting about like when it comes to collecting works because like i've run into the situation of course where in my family, like my parents have emotional attachments to the experience of them purchasing a piece. But me, I have no personal attachment to it other than it was in the house when I grew up. That's it. And so there's that interesting sort of transition of estates as a sort of time progresses of like certain things have emotional value to, let's say, the, the older generation that they don't for the younger generation and vice versa, because there are some pieces that like I absolutely love and they're like, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> like, we don't like that at all. And I'm like, I'm like, but it has a great thing for me. So it, it's a very interesting thing. But beyond that, that with estate planning is like, are a lot of people, I guess, so like from your experiences, are a lot of collectors thinking they will be keeping their collection in the family or are many of them thinking about donating to museums or build or creating sort of estate collections that will loan to museums and stuff like this? So like, is it more keep it in the family or offer to public institutions? It really depends. A lot of times, as I mentioned, it's hard to get anybody to think about this. And part of it is because many people, especially successful people, don't like to think about their own mortality. So to sit down and have to think about a plan after they're gone is really, really hard for them, especially when it's their art collection that, like your parents, everything has a story. I remember when I saw this and this would happen and, and it, it's just a whole, it's not like buying a building. There's no emotional attachment really to buildings for the most part. So they don't really want to think about it, but some of them would prefer to keep it in the family, although, as I mentioned, families don't really want it. 
But a lot of times for important collections, they would want to donate at least part of it to a museum. Sometimes collectors want to keep some of the collection together, want it because it, they've lived with it and it, they have conversations with each other and it, it's just a whole thing. So it, it really depends. Although, you know, another whole podcast could be on donating to museums because it's very difficult to donate to museums. That actually was going to be my next question. <laughs> museums almost always say no, unless it's something perfect that fits into their collection and that they can actually display because the vast majority of museum holdings sits in storage and they don't want to just take things that are going to also sit in storage. So it has to fit with their collection and maybe fill a hole in their collection or work with what they have. But a lot of times, not a lot of times, but it has been the case where big collections that are donated to museums, maybe museum would want 20 of the works, but they have to take all 50 of them because that's the only way to get the 20. And then there are all kinds of stipulations. You have to show at least all of the works every five years or something. And so they hang them all and then they put most of them in storage. And that they're not allowed to sell any of the collection and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Yeah. The deaccessioning of museums has been a huge topic and controversy, particularly since COVID, because a lot of museums are hurting and they've been wanting to sell artworks to cover their operating costs, which is not typically what they're allowed to do. So that's been an issue. It has. I mean, do you deal, I guess, so you deal in helping people buy things. Do you help people to sell things? Yes, all the time. Sell and donate and loan to museums. It's, it's a full service business. All right. Any other topics that you want to talk about that I didn't even know to ask about? I don't think so. I mean, I will go back to collecting art should be fun. It should not be stressful, and people lose sight of that sometimes. It's supposed to be enjoyable, the process and the living with the art afterwards. Okay, can you tell me something? Here, I, I like gossipy kinds of things. So what's the, the, the one, one piece that you ever helped somebody acquire that you were like, oh my God, I got to work with this artwork? I don't know if I have an answer for that. I mean, it's hard to say, really. I mean, there's so many happy endings. I mean, lately in particular, since, as I was saying, there's so much competition for art, there's waiting lists and bigger collectors and museums. And I've been able to help clients acquire works lately that I've been very excited about and somewhat even surprised at times that I was able to get the work for a client happened earlier this year, a very popular artist that was, the painting was more expensive than my client wanted to pay. And we negotiated, I, I was surprised that I even was offered the work, but we negotiated and he ended up paying more than he wanted to because he did really want it. And I think he was a little unsure that maybe he overpaid, but a week later, the painting was chosen to be in a museum exhibition in Europe. And he was very excited. And I was excited because there was no doubt anymore in his mind. And it's hanging in an exhibition in Europe right now. Well, actually, wait, okay, that lends to a question. So like, okay, so you help collectors buy works and sell works. Do you also sort of help with like getting them into institutions as well? Or is that more of a gallery curator thing? 
If a museum wants to have an exhibition of an artist, they will typically work with galleries to source the works. And a lot of times the galleries work with their artists to know Sometimes there are works that everybody agrees they would like to borrow, but in this particular instance, the artist was asked what works he wanted in this show, and my client's painting was on the list. And that happened recently for another client that the client lives in New York and the institution is on the East Coast and artist is in Los Angeles. And the gallery also in New York asked me if my clients would lend a piece they had bought to this show, an exhibition that opens on January 15th, which is exciting. And I said, you know, I'm 99% sure they'll say yes, but I have to ask them. And so they were very excited. They said yes. But then my client came back and he said, is it only because I'm in New York that they're trying to borrow my piece because it costs more to ship from Los Angeles? And I said, no, the artist was asked what her favorite works are and your piece is on the list and she doesn't know where it ended up and she doesn't care because the museum pays for shipping. So she really just wants your piece to be in the show. So he was excited about that. So that's a lot of how that happens. I mean, you also, you know, I like to think I'm easy for galleries to work with so that they would approach me. I have another client bought something from a gallery in Switzerland last summer, and it's actually still there because it's for a home in Miami and he won't be here until next month. So it's still sitting in Switzerland and the gallery in Switzerland told me recently that this artist is now having an exhibition, will be a traveling exhibition. And especially since they still have possession of it, she's trying to get this piece into the show, which is good for the provenance and the price and the artist. Yes. Wait, you brought up provenance. I know I keep trying to end this, but then you keep bringing up great topics. Provenance. I'm fascinated. Okay. My little question is like certificates of authenticities. Like, are they necessary? Period. First of all. It depends. I mean, some of the younger artists have been issuing certificates of authenticity, which to me seems a little unnecessary. <laughs> Pompous, maybe? Yes. But... You know, if you want to sell a Warhol painting, it's good to have a certificate of authenticity, even though there was a committee that used to do that, issue them, and it was disbanded years ago because they had too many lawsuits and couldn't afford to stay open anymore. But for certain artists that have been prone to forgeries, it's good to have that, but they're not... I mean, most artists don't have them is, is really the answer to that. And for living artists, it's really not an issue. And if you have an invoice from a reputable gallery, that is usually enough. But if you're buying something older from an artist who is dead and galleries that don't exist anymore, it is hard sometimes to trace the provenance because if you call a gallery in Europe that existed in 1942 that doesn't exist anymore, it's hard to confirm that. And there is insurance. There's title insurance that you can buy but nobody does because it's really expensive. And what somebody really wants is to prove authenticity and title insurance will guarantee the provenance, but it doesn't guarantee authenticity. I mean, in theory, if you can trace something all the way back to an artist, then it kind of proves authenticity, but it doesn't at the end of the day. And so it doesn't get people where they want to be and it's expensive. So people don't really use it. Fair enough. Most artists don't have the funds to do all that kind of stuff anyways. No, they don't. All right. 
Any last little information you want to give out or anything? No, I don't think so. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. You're welcome. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed and learned something from our conversation. After all, I am a professor. I like learning. I've learned a lot myself about many of the things that I did wrong in my career thus far and many of the things that I need to put more effort into moving forward. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Ron Helt for their comment and five-star rating. Thank you, Ron Helt. R-N-O-H-E-L-T-T. Don't know how to pronounce it correctly. I hope I got it right. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple's podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find out more information about the podcast on Instagram at thewisefoolpod, or on our website, which is simply wisefoolpod.com